Hello, everybody, and welcome to another fact-filled episode of Mike's Amazing World of DC History. I'm your host, Mike Voiles, and the creator of the website, Mike's Amazing World of Comics. For those of you that don't already know, I have a lifelong passion, aka addiction, to DC Comics. So strong is this passion that I want to collect, own, and read every DC comic ever published. While I do own more than 90% of these comics, there's still a few that I haven't bought yet. Fortunately, each and every one of those that I'm missing is available to me in some form or another, mostly through microfiche released in the 1990s by Micropoet. Although the format and viewing quality is oftentimes poor, I can now read every DC comic. That's more than 40,000 books, and I'm in the process of doing just that. Most of the early issues are available only to me in that microfiche format. I'm still acquiring paper copies to replace them. For instance, recently I bought a copy of More Fun Number 11 from July 1936. It's now the earliest book in my collection, so I was really excited to get it, even though it did have hole punches in it that went through the entire book. Lower grade means lower price, which means I can buy more comics. So for More Fun Number 11, I can stop using that funky fish viewer and read my beautiful paper copy. Yes, I do read my comics. I don't seal them up in that ridiculous CGC coffin. My reading project is starting at the very beginning, when DC was known as National Allied Publications, under the direction of founder Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. During this reading project, I'll be sharing this experience with you, the listener. I'll also be providing background information about the company and the creators. The first DC comic ever published, New Fun Number 1, went on sale in January 1935. It contained more than 20 features and a variety of text pieces. In my previous episode, I've already covered many of the features which were serialized over several issues. Rather than cover each issue in sequence, I've decided to follow the story threads of the features. Hopefully this format will bring a greater sense of continuity to the show which would otherwise be giving you small clips of 20 or more features. In this fifth episode, I'll be covering the remaining features that debuted in New Fun Number 1 and begin moving forward to additional features which premiered in later issues. The Magic Crystal of History was a feature drawn by artist Adolph Barreau, and it began in New Fun Number 1. Barreau began drawing for the pulps in the early 1920s. He often worked on magazines, produced by publisher Harry Donenfield, who would later become the head of DC Comics. One popular strip illustrated by Rowe was Sally the Sleuth, which appeared in Donenfield's Spicy Detective. Rowe founded Majestic Studios, which ran until 1953, when he left comics altogether. He went to work for Fawcett, which was also leaving the comics field, after losing a decade-long battle with DC over the rights of Captain Marvel. The Magic Crystal starred two children, perhaps around age 12, Bobby the boy and Binks the girl, are on their way home when a sudden rainstorm forces them to seek shelter. They find refuge in an old house, although Binks thinks it may be haunted. Inside the dark mansion, they find a glowing crystal ball. Bobby picks it up and finds it warm to the touch. Suddenly, a blinding light and a cacophony of sound stuns the children. When they recover their senses, they open their eyes and find that they have been transported back in time 
6,000 years to ancient Egypt. Part 2 of the story appears in New Fun Number 2. It also has a mini feature at the top of the page called Bright Spots of History, which notes memorable moments in the life of George Washington. Through the magic of the crystal, Bobby and Binks are able to understand the language spoken by the ancient Egyptians. When the Egyptians see the anachronistic clothing worn by the children, they take the kids to the local priests. The holy men believe the children are demons and order them to be tested with axes. If the axes don't kill the children, they'll be pronounced human. If the kids are killed when the axes strike their necks, well, they'll be known as demons. Hmm, sounds like a Salem witch trial here to me. So the axes fall and the children are beheaded. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> At the last moment, the pharaoh Cheops arrives and orders the children spared. Another installment of Bright Spots of History appears in issue 3, this time featuring Archimedes. In Egypt, Cheops argues with the priests, who are angry that he has interfered with the test. Bobby and Binks accompany the pharaoh back to his palace, but on the way there a sandstorm rises and threatens the group. After issue 3, Adolf Barreau would leave the strip. He was replaced on issues number 4 and 5 by artist Monroe Eisenberg, who also did the Sondra of the Secret Service adventures in those two issues. During the desert sandstorm, an assassin pulls a knife and attempts to assassinate the pharaoh. Bobby sees the knife and shouts a warning. The warning is enough to alert the guards, loyal to Cheops. The pharaoh thanks them and brings them to the palace, where they are placed under the care of Hotep, master of the household. But the priests still plot against the children. Issue number four has a mini-feature, On the Banks of the Nile, which provides some facts about the pyramids. Number five has Bright Lights of History, with facts about Giuseppe Yerdi. These little fact features were abundant in early comics, making them at least somewhat educational. At Cheops's palace, Hotep conspires with two assassins working for the priests to kill the children. However, Hotep becomes the victim of his own poison. Bobby and Binks are saved once again. Issue number six opens with Bobby and Binks transported back to the haunted house by the magic crystal. Unlike issues number three through five, which were in color, the magic crystal strip in number six is printed in black and white. The strip would alternate between color and black and white until around issue 15, which from that point on, it would always be in color. Number six through eight were drawn by artist Ray Wardell. He spells his name with one L in these issues, but most of the information I've found concerning him shows two L's in his last name. In any case, Wardell, born in 1886, worked in advertising and as a calligrapher until the 1920s. He then went to work as a pulp artist. These episodes of The Magic Crystal were his only work at National. During World War II, he worked for the War Department, and he published a book on photography after the war. Wardell died in 1966. Back to the story. Bobby and Banks don't remain in the haunted house for long, one whole panel. Instead, The Magic Crystal once again transports them back in time to ancient Egypt. This time they go to a slightly different time period, in which the boy king, Tutankhamun, ruled, still ruled. Tutankhamun was popularly known as King Tut, and was a pharaoh who ruled around 1330 BC. He was made famous in 1922, when archaeologists Howard Carter and George Herbert discovered his tomb intact. 
This find was astounding since most of the tombs had been raided and robbed for thousands of years. The discovery sparked unprecedented interest in the rather obscure pharaoh and brought international attention to ancient Egypt in the 1920s. In 1935, when this story was published, interest was still high, even though the exhibit, which displayed King Tut relics, had not yet left the Royal Museum in Egypt. The exhibit would eventually tour the world, and King Tut would become a touchstone of popular culture. So Bobby and Binks find themselves back in Egypt. This time they are caught in a conflict between King Tut and the soldiers of Amon Re. Although the children deliver a warning to the pharaoh before the soldiers arrive, the enemy forces are too large. Tutankhamun is forced to retreat to the city walls for defense. The forces of Amon Re surround the city. Bobby suggests radioing for help, only to realize that the radio doesn't exist yet. King Tut then sends the children on a mission to bring help from his brother, who resides in a neighboring city. The kids sneak out at night to make the trip across the desert. It's dark, so Bobby pulls out a flashlight that he had brought from the present to find his way. But the enemy soldiers see the light and capture the children. With issue number 9, the story is expanded to two pages per issue. Another artist also takes over the strip for issues 9 and 10, Harlan Davis Haskins. I can't find much of anything regarding Haskins. I only know his name because he signed each of these strips. These two episodes contain no dialogue. Each panel has a caption which provides details about the action in the artwork. Bobby and Binks are held under guard as the forces of Amon Re storm the walls of the city. When the defenders counterattack, the guard forgets about the children. Bobby and Binks then run into the desert for help. The kids finally reach the city of King Tut's brother. While the ruler marshals his forces, Bobby and Binks are bathed and fed. They then join the king's brother's army on the march to help the pharaoh. Gee, I hope we don't get caught, says Binks. No need to fear. Because although your strip says to be continued, the story does not actually continue. The feature is entirely missing from Morphon number 11. It would return in number 12 under the hand of Homer Fleming, yet another artist. The adventure in number 12 has Bobby and Banks traveling to ancient Persia. Was the conclusion of the King's Tut story ever drawn? I don't know. It's just another of the growing list of strips from this time in which pages seemed to have gone missing and were never printed. As the series continued under Fleming, Bobby and Binks would take a less active role. The series lasted all the way until Morphun number 50, but later episodes read more like summaries of historical events than stories. I may cover the Fleming material in another episode. I love the concept of this strip. I'm usually a sucker for time travel stories, and I do like historical fiction. That being said, this story didn't capitalize on the idea nearly enough. It really amounted to two kids running around in the desert. I do realize that the target audience for this was young kids, but I really wish they would have woven in more detail about the various time periods the kids visited. I think I got more of a feel for the time periods in the three-panel Bright Spots of History segment than I did from the actual adventures. Of the four artists that worked on the on these ten chapters, I definitely like Barreau the best. His style was very clean, and his drawings were detailed. I found Eisenberg's art to be too sketchy for my taste. Wardell drew some good battle scenes, but I didn't care for the way the children looked. 
and the last episode he drew in number 8 was downright muddy. Although, some of that may be just due to the microfiche copy I'm reading it from. Haskins was my least favorite. His layout choices in number 9 were all drawn from too far away. He would have been better off drawing some close-ups or mid-range angles. Instead, I only got to see little specks and lines that represented men in the big battle scene. Pretty disappointing. Better angles were used in number 10, but the figures were just not drawn with any detail. It looked like people-shaped blobs at times. I think this one had some potential. I haven't read all the Fleming material yet, so I'll have to see what, what he does with it later on. Hellion and Osa was a cartoon strip that ran from New Fun Number 1 to More Fun Number 20. Hellion is a penguin and Osa is a bear. Though not a polar bear since he is colored brown when, the co when color was introduced in New Fun Number 3. Their names are taken from two mountains in Greece, which legend has it were stacked on top of one another by giants in an attempt to reach the heavens. Despite the fact that penguins are from the Antarctic, these adventures take place in the Arctic. This is typical funny animals material and not particularly noteworthy. The first episode is signed Kevin, and the third installment carries Kevin as the byline. It isn't clear though who Kevin is. Since I don't have a last name to go with, issue number two has a solo Pelion script that shares a page with Oswald the Rabbit. Not coincidentally, the art on the Oswald strip appears to have been done by the same artist. I have seen John Lindermeyer credited for both these strips elsewhere, but that doesn't match up with the name Kevin. Lindermeyer does sign both strips in issue 4. The styles don't match the previous issues either. So I think our mystery man Kevin drew Oswald and Pelion and Osa in issues 1 through 3, not Lindermeyer. The Pelion and Osa strips shares a page with a short dog gone in issue 3. That strip is simply credited as Hey. Sure enough, Jerry Bales, Who's Who, shows the artist named Kevin Hay who worked on Pelion and Osa. I believe he is responsible for the strip. But the Bales site is the only reference I can find to the guy, so I don't know if it's a pseudonym or if there really is an artist named Kevin Hay. I just don't know. Other artists who worked on this feature included Al Stahl, who drew number 6 to 12, Bill Carney, who did number 13 through 17, someone who signed their name Batty in issue 18, and Pete D'Angelo in number 20. Helen and also were not in Morph on number 19. Up next is Ivanhoe. Ivanhoe was a novel written in the early 19th century by Sir Walter Scott. The novel is historical fiction and takes place in the 12th century England. It is often credited with rekindling interest in medieval times. Wilfred of Ivanhoe, the main character, comes from a Saxon family during a time in which England was under the rule of Richard I, a Norman. The novel was adapted into comic form beginning with New Find Number 1. The Ivanhoe strip ran until its conclusion, which appeared in More Fun Number 27. The strip did not appear in, in Morphine number 9. DC founder Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson had already serialized the novel Treasure Island in comic strip form prior to his creation of National Allies. I suspect that he wrote this adaptation as well, 
Art for the series was provided first by Charles Flanders, who illustrated Sondra of the Secret Service. Flanders drew both the strips in New Fun No. 1 through 3. Artist Raymond Perry drew at least the next two installments as they bear his signature. Perry worked in advertising prior to working in comics. In addition to drawing Ivanhoe, Perry often worked in the production department doing lettering and coloring. He contributed many spot illustrations for text features and stories until the mid-1950s. He was also a portrait artist. After issue 5, no art credits exist on the stories themselves. Other sources claim that Perry drew the series until its completion in War Fund number 27. But there is a distinct artistic change beginning with More Fun Number 10. With that episode, the artwork becomes far more simplistic compared to Flanders or Perry, who are both fine illustrators. Backgrounds were sparsely populated, and most of the panels contained close-ups and mid-range shots instead of the panoramic, panoramic views in the early episodes. Therefore, I think there was another artist involved here, but I don't know who it was. I definitely prefer the earlier episodes. Beginning with Morpha number 19, the strip was printed in two colors instead of the traditional four. I explained the system in a previous episode. These were all printed in black, white, and red. Issues number 2 through 6 contain a mini-feature on the same page entitled In Days of Yore. These provide little factoids about medieval times. The story itself is told told entirely without dialogue. Each panel has a caption under it with text which which advances the story. I was quite bored within a few pages, so I won't force you to suffer through a full synopsis. I often found my mind drifting off while reading it. It really was hard to focus on this story. I've never read the novel, but suffice it to say, this adaptation would not inspire me to read it. It might work well as a sleeping aid, but not as, a, as something to read. The novel would be adapted again in classic comics in 1941, a precursor to Classics Illustrated. This time the art was drawn by Ed Ash. I know that Classics Illustrated still has quite a following, but I'm not a fan of adaptations between mediums in general. That includes movie based, movies based on books and comics too. In any case, this version of Ivaho is a, is a snooze fest. I'll be waiting to see if the other novel adaptations done in early issues of More Fun were any better. I know they did Three Musketeers and Treasure Island, possibly others that I can't think of at the moment. Artist Tom Cooper drew Buckskin Jim, a strip set in the early American frontier. Information on the life of Cooper has proven a challenge to locate. He did also use the name Mac Fergus and produced some fine art, mostly oil paintings, under the name T. McFergus Cooper. These oil paintings were often New England maritime themes. Given that several of the features he worked on were set at sea, I'd have to guess that this was an area of interest for Mr. Cooper. In the first two years of National's existence, Cooper was a prolific artist. He contributed multiple strips to each of DC's first three dozen publications. In addition to Buckskin Jim, Cooper drew Captain Spinnaker, short gags which ran in Morphine number 2 through 6. He also drew the features In the Wake of the Wander, Along the Main Line, Jack Andrews, 
Midshipman Dewey, and Bob Merritt. All these appeared in New Fun and More Fun. When National launched its second title, New Comics, in 1936, Cooper was on board drawing Castaway Island, 1720 on the Black, and more Captain Spinnaker stories, which moved over from New Fun. Cooper's last stories appeared in More Fun number 19 in early 1937. I suspect Cooper may have written many or all of these stories that he worked on as an artist. His career after leaving National is unknown to me, although he does have a few credits and stories published by Centaur. As I mentioned, Buckskin Jim was a, a piece set on the American frontier. Often I see these features miscategorized as westerns, but that this isn't a western and has more in common with features like DC's long-running frontier hero Tomahawk. The title character, Jim Kenyon, a boy in a coonskin cap, which two decades later would become all the rage with like young boys, inspired by Daniel Boone. Jim looks like he's in his mid to late teens, and he's on a wagon train from east the East Coast to California. It's unclear exactly when this story is set. I'm guessing the early 1800s. The story begins in New Fun Number One, with Jim being left behind when the wagon train departs from New Orleans. Jim tries to follow the wagon on foot, hoping to catch up. He encounters an old man and his horse and helps them escape from a quicksand bog. The old man then gives Jim a ride to help catch the wagons. Before they reach their destination, their destination, they run across an Indian raiding party. In the second episode, the old man is given a name, Trapper Pete. Jim and Pete fight bravely and they eventually are captured by the Indians. The white men are bound and placed inside a tent. Jim uses his teeth to gnaw through the ropes, binding Pete's hands. The duo then overpower the Indians, steal some horses, and make their escape. They ride for the wagon train to bring a warning of the Indian attack. Pete falls behind, but Jim is able to raise the alarm before the Indians can begin their ambush. With the camp alerted, the Indians are chased away. However, after the action is over, it is discovered that Zeb Halloway's daughter, Mary, is missing. Jim forces a captured Indian to lead him back to their camp. The pioneers see Mary held prisoner within. The Indian prisoner then yells a warning to his people. The settlers charge and a battle begins. While the battle rages, Jim slips past the enemy lines and cuts Mary loose. He then sets fire to the enemy camp. With the battle turning against them and their village on fire, the Indians are forced to flee. With Mary safely returned and the Indians routed, the wagon train resumes its trek in more fun number 8. Jim is sent ahead to search for a trail through the canyon. He encounters a mountain lion. While trying to protect himself, Jim falls from a cliff and into a river. He is pulled out by a frontiersman named Dan in a canoe who offers to help find a path for the wagon train. While doing so, they find a wounded Indian whom they offer to take back to his tribe. Meanwhile, back at the wagon train, Mary is abducted again, by, this time by an Indian half-breed named Pierre. When Jim and the trapper reach the Indian camp, the chief thanks him for returning the wounded man. Jim then sees Pierre and rescues Mary. Pierre leaves the camp, but Jim goes after him, suspecting that he will cause trouble again. Jim finds his man and a struggle begins. Jim nearly loses his life, but the timely arrival of Trapper Dan 
saves it. Meanwhile, the wagon train is attempting to cross the river in a canyon when a storm hits. One of the wagons is washed down river. Jim and his friends see it as they are returning to the wagon train from the Indian camp. Dan swims out to save a woman, Martha Halliday, who is still in the wagon. Jim remains on shore, holding a rope tied to Dan. Just then, Pierre, wielding a knife, comes into view. Jim hands the rope to Mary. He then punches Pierre off a cliff and into the raging river. Jim and Mary then pull Dan and Martha back to shore. Martha is reunited with her husband, Zeb. The wagon train continues its march in Morpha number 15. They find a good spot for a settlement and begin building before winter sets in. While work continues, Jim goes on a hunt in search of buffalo. He encounters two Indian scouts who bring him back to their village. Jim befriends the Indians and makes peace with them. The chief decides to induct Jim into the tribe, which causes a young, brave, little wolf to become jealous. The two young men scuffle. Jim offers to be friends, but Little Wolf refuses. When the settlers and Indians begin trading, Little Wolf steals a rifle, forcing Jim to go after him. Little Wolf tries to shoot Jim before falling off a cliff. Jim climbs down and finds the Indian brave unconscious and injured. Unable to climb back up the cliff, Jim carries Little Wolf into the river. The current carries them dangerously near a falls, but Jim is able to pull himself and the Indian onto a rock formation to await help. But before long, Zeb and Pete find them and help them safely back to shore. At this point, the story says to be continued, but the episode in Morphine number 18, cover dated February 1937, is the final installment. This may be due to the departure of Tom Cooper, who had drawn the entire series. I did rather enjoy this series. I thought the story was told in an engaging manner with excitement and action. Cooper's art style could be described as sketchy, which I don't ordinarily find favorable. However, it did work well in this strip. The entire series was printed in black and white, although more fun number 15 had red added as a second color. I think the black and white worked really well for this artwork. Had it been in color, I don't think it would have been nearly as nice, and I don't think I would have liked it as much. My favorite parts were at the end of the series, which had really nice backgrounds and landscapes of the American frontier. All in all, I think this was one of the best original features that they viewed in the front of the If you've read comics from the 1960s or earlier, you should be familiar with an aspect of comics that no longer exists, that being the text story. These stories were usually a single page or two pages in length, and to be honest, were boring. 90% of the time, when I was reading old comics, I just flipped past these text stories. They might as well be blank pages. I don't think I'm alone in doing this either. So if these stories were boring, why were they included? The reason has to do with postal regulations. In order to qualify for second-class mailing, the post office required comics and magazines to contain at least one page of text. I'm assuming the shipping rates were lower if this requirement was met, so publishers devised a way to appease the system, if not for their readers. Eventually, these text stories were replaced by letter columns, which provided an added bonus and then allowed readers to communicate with the editors and each other, which helped to grow the comic fandom community. Some DC editors embraced the letter columns, 
which were still which still met the postal requirements. Other editors, such as Jack Schiff, did not. So the tech stories continued in the comics he edited. When comics distribution changed to the direct market, the old postal regulations no longer applied. This and the rise of the internet allowed letter columns to be phased out. All right, so why am I talking about tech stories and letter columns? I just want to give you a frame of reference because the early issues of New Fun contained a whopping 12 pages of text in a 32-page comic. Keep in mind that these early comics had no formula to follow. Publishers just tried things out. The things that worked well, they kept and continued. Not everything was a success, though. I suspect the text articles were not what kids wanted back then. If a kid wanted to read text, there were plenty of books available. But comics, the combination of story and pictures, were a thing all to itself. When I read comics as a kid, and even now, that's what I want. Kids from the 1930s had different circumstances than I did growing up, which is also different from that of the lives of kids today. But I don't think the overall appeal of the comic format, words and art in combination, has really changed. That said, um, some text pieces in comics aren't all bad. It can certainly add to the comic material, such as with Say, Alan Moore's text pieces that he did in Watchmen. So what was in these 12 pages in New Fun number 1? First off is a western mystery story entitled Spook Ranch. It was written by Roger Furlong. Like many text stories, it contained a spot illustration. This one was done by Charles Flanders. Spook Ranch would continue in New Fun number 2. Next up was a short fact-filled article about bathyspheres. It was accompanied by an illustration depicting a Martian looking at a bathysphere and being puzzled by it. And keep in mind, a bathysphere is like a sphere that goes underwater so that you can survey the underwater landscape. Uh, both the writer of the article and the artist are unknown. Uh, next up is the sports column by Joe Archibald, the artist who drew Scrabble Hardy. Archibald also drew fillers such as Western Willie and Pete's Place in New Fun Number 2. This particular sports article was about hockey and the Toronto Maple Leafs. Other sports articles would appear in later issues. On the radio and in the movies were articles devoted to what was happening in popular media of the day. This was back when radio dramas were commonplace and before television was available. The TV had been invented at this time, but it was still rare for anybody to have one. Programming for TV wouldn't hit stride until the 1950s. Radio and movies were covered in later issues, too. New Fun Number 1 contained an article about the Buck Rogers radio show, complete with a photo of Buck and Wilma. Not the Gil Gerard version, obviously, but I'll take Aaron Gray over this Wilma during any day of the week. The movie section contains a heading, Talk About Talkies. I guess movies were still referred to as talkies. The jazz singer, in 1927, is usually credited with the first movie with sound. So something other than silent movies were still relatively new at this time. This issue talks about an upcoming movie serial called The Rustlers of Red Gap starring Johnny Mac Brown, an actor from the 1920s through the 1960s. 
IMDB shows that this serial was actually released under the title Wrestlers of Red Dog, not Red Gap. But the big news here is that the character played by Brown is Jack Woods. Yes, Jack Woods, the cover star of this very issue of New Fun. I talked about his adventures in the very first episode of my show. The serial began on January 21st, 1935, 10 days after New Fun number 1 hit the stands. According to the article, the comic strip was based on the movie. So here's yet another cross-media tie-in for New Fun. The others, of course, were Oswald the Rabbit and Bubby and Beeble, which were both discussed in my previous episodes. Before researching this stuff for my podcast, I was really only aware of Oswald's media connections. So this is interesting stuff, at least for me. And we have here what may be the first uh, movie that DC adapted to comic book form in Jack Woods. I had no idea it was a movie adaptation. Next up, several pages dedicated to model building, with diagrams for a model plane and a ship. There's also an illustration of a sailing ship drawn by Bob Weinstein, who draw who would draw the Captain Eric strip. The page headings for these text features were drawn by art editor Dick Letterer. Finally, there's articles on popular science, stamps and coins, and young homemakers. This last one was aimed at young girls and provided tips for the kitchen. This was a time during which women were expected to stay home and raise families. While that still happens sometimes in today's world, there are far more options available to women today. And the very last feature in New Fun Number 1 that I haven't covered yet is Fun Films, a strip by Adolph Barreau, who also did The Magic Crystal. This episode is called Tad Among the Pirates. It takes place in New York Harbor in 1735 and features a young boy, Tad, who finds his way aboard a pirate ship. What's unique about this story is that the reader is meant to cut out the panels with scissors, then slide them through a larger slotted panel in rapid fashion to simulate motion. I wonder how many copies of this book were destroyed from kids cutting up this page. Tad's adventures continue in New Fun number 2 and 3, in which Tad is caught by the pirates. He tries to escape climbing onto a rope used to tie the, the ship's mast. The pirate captain slices the rope, which leads to a cliffhanger. Since the series ended after three episodes, that cliffhanger was never resolved. And just a reminder, kids, don't cut up your comics. Alright, now I can finally move on to new fun number two. New fun number two began with a new message from Fun the Fantastic. Remember him from my first episode? Starts with a message that reads, Tune in on your pal fun for glad news to you. Here I am again for the second time. First of all, fun wants to thank you for the way you liked him. Honest fellows and girls, fun is so happy he feels like turning several handsprings about it. In fact, he's gotten letters from all over the country from people who want, who want him to pose as a model for snowmen. Soon there will be fun snowmen all over the country. Fun is sorry that there aren't enough fun magazine for all of you. To those of you who were disappointed the first time, Fun says, cheer up, this issue is bigger and better, if it can be better. There are lots more of them. 
so that that you'll all be able to get a copy if you rush right down to your newsstand now but don't delay tell any of your friends who want a copy that they had better move fast otherwise they may be disappointed too and fun doesn't want anybody to be disappointed not if he can help it now about our last prize contest the mailman dumped so many sacks and cartloads of letters and coupon on fun that he had really he was really snowed under it took at least a week before the police department and the fire department and a special crew of miners were able to dig him out. And at least another week before Fun was able to get start going through the answers. So he'll just have to be patient with Fun for a while longer. There are so many good answers that he doesn't want to miss a single one. As soon as all the returns are in, Fun will let you know the outcome. So don't be surprised if the mailman comes to you any morning in the near future in the very near future, and hands you a prize from fun. There is another prize contest this month. Do all of you see the big coupon at the bottom of this page? Yes, that's it. The one with the big picture of me cutting it out with scissors. Well, you do the very same thing that fun is doing. Cut out that coupon yourself. No! Boys and girls, don't play with scissors. Never, ever, ever cut up your comics, unless they're 90s junk. And even then, don't do it! Then when you cut it out, fill in every line, your name and address, the name of the story or the comic strip you like best, and the name of the movie theater nearest you. Hmm, they didn't ask for social security number. But of course, those didn't exist until 1936. No credit cards either. Don't leave anything out. And do it now. Speed counts, because if your coupon is among the first hundred to be mailed to you, Fun will get you a prize, a free pass for five shows at your nearest movie theater. And don't forget to send me a letter, too. Tell me in the letter why you like fun and what you like best in fun. Be sure to make it a good letter, because the ten best letter writers are going to receive an original drawing of one of fun's comic strips. Mothers, please take note. 2013 estimated cash value, $50,000. Don't throw your kids' comics or toys away. This has been a public service announcement. And say, will that look good? It'll have an inscription from the artist to you on the bottom and everything. Here's the coupon. Fill it out now and mail it in at once. After March 4th, it will be too late. Look for the next issue. Fun will bring you a special bigger prize contest. And that will be lots of fun for everybody. And the prizes will be... Shh, it's a secret. Just wait and see. Alright, that was the intro for New Fun Number 2. New Fun Number 2, cover dated March 1935, sports another Jack Woods cover. The most important strip to make its debut in this issue was Little Linda. The strip itself is rather unremarkable, but it was created and drawn by artist Whitney Ellsworth. Born in 1908, Ellsworth had worked on syndicated comic strips since the late 1920s. He would serve as one of the early editors for National and would last far longer than even company founder Wheeler Nicholson. He was a guiding hand in the development of both Superman and Batman at DC. His contributions were not only made as an editor, Ellsworth continued to draw, including art for 1940's Batman and Robin syndicated strip. After World War II, Ellsworth became editorial director at DC. His name would appear in the indicia in just about every comic DC published during the 1950s. 
He was also instrumental in getting the Adventures of Superman television show off the ground, moving from New York to California to do it. Ellsworth retired in 1970 and passed away in 1980. He is remembered now as one of the pivotal figures in early DC history. Little Linda is a blonde eight-year-old runaway orphan. While walking between towns one night, Linda sees a car. The driver drops off a little three-year-old boy in the middle of nowhere, then leaves. The boy is Buddy Stone, who stands to inherit a fortune. His uncle Wilbur has therefore left him alone to die, so that he can take control of the money. Linda helps the boy, and they are eventually picked up by a kindly man who takes them home and feeds them. In the morning, the man's wife goes to report the lost children to the police. Not wanting to be taken back to the orphanage, Linda leaves with Buddy. While walking the streets, the children are seen by Uncle Wilbur. Eventually, Linda decides that bringing the kids or the kid to the police is a good idea. She takes him to the station, and Buddy is identified as the heir to a fortune. Wilbur kills himself because he can't face his own guilt. Buddy insists on staying with Linda, so the kids are put in the care of a guardian. But when Linda's wicked stepmother learns that the girl is living with a rich family, she tries to use the situation to get money for herself. Not wanting to bring trouble to Buddy, Linda, run Linda runs away again at the end of New Fun Number 6. Little Linda is featured on the cover of More Fun Number 7 in a one-off strip. Her adventures also continue inside. By now it should be pretty obvious that Little Linda the Orphan was meant to be a knockoff of Little Orphan Annie, a long-running comic strip that began as far back as 1924. This is not surprising as many of the strips in New Fun were inspired or knockoffs of popular comic strips of the day. The contents of New Fun may be all new stories, but they were certainly not all original ideas. Linda's adventures, which were all in color ex with the exception of her first appearance, lasted all the way until More Fun Comics number 30. I found her stories to be just okay, nothing special. Ellsworth has a rather cartoony style, which I often found suitable for this material. Although Linda's face was really simplistic at times, and that always didn't fit with the other characters who were slightly more realistically drawn, I'm not sure if it's the concept of a light-hearted strip about a homeless orphan that doesn't interest me or, or not, but, because the execution of this strip was actually pretty good for the time period. Not bad for what it was, but I still walked away from it with a meh opinion on it. So that brings us to the last of the strips I'll be covering this episode, Midshipman Dewey. Jack Dewey was introduced in New Fun Number 2, under the strip title, Jolly Roger. The first two episodes of Jack's adventures were drawn by Adolph Burrow and appeared on the same page as his fun film strip. Dewey is a naval cadet, also known as a midshipman, on a sloop named the USS Hornet. He looks to be about 16 years old. The ship is in search of pirates. While on lookout duty, Jack spots the Jolly Roger, a pirate ship commanded by a pirate named Tiger. The two ships fire on one another and eventually get close enough for the pirates to board. A hand-to-hand -hand fight ensues, and Jack is pushed over the rail. In the third installment, the strip is retitled Midshipman Dewey, and is now drawn by Dick Letterer. 
it now shares a page with Tom Cooper's Jack Andrews strip. Here we see Jack board the pirate ship, then he sets it adrift. The Hornet commander opens fire on the pirate ship, forcing Jack to dive overboard. Before he can reach the side of the ship, he is attacked by two pirates. Jack fights for his life and kills one of them, but the other catches him and nearly chokes Jack to death. When the ship is fired on again, the blast knocks Jack and the pirate into the water. More Fun number 7 features the first full-page Midshipman Dewey adventure. The artist is now Tom Cooper, who continued on the feature until it ended in More Fun number 19. In this episode, we see Jack rescued from the waters by men from the ship. The damaged pirate ship burns, then sinks. The remaining pirates are taken prisoner and placed in the hold. When Jack goes to check on them, he discovers that some of his own crew have joined the pirates. They take over the ship, but not before the captain orders Dewey to slip away and bring help. With issue number 9, the feature was expanded from 1 to 2 pages. Color was dropped from the ship from the strip in issue 10. It had been in color since number 3. Remember these early issues of New Fun and More Fun were part black and white, part color? I think the lack of color was a good thing for Cooper's artwork here, uh, just as it was on the Buckskin Jim strip. The pirates steer the captured ship to an island. Dewey dives in the water and swims to the shore. When the pirates disembark, Dewey knocks out a guard and reboards the ship. He frees the captain and other loyal men. When the pirates return, the captain opens fire on them, but another group has gotten on board from the other side of the ship. They plan to blow it up. Fortunately, a brief rainstorm dampens the fuses on their, on their explosives. The pirates' retreat is timed with the arrival of a merchant ship named the Falcon, commanded by a man named Hale. The ship has been menaced by Dorgon the pirate, so Hale asks Captain Smith to act as escort. Dewey is ordered to serve on the merchant ship. Soon after boarding, he draws the ire of one of the merchant crew named Thorn. Another crewman, Stumpy Smithers, stands up for Dewey. Thorn comes after Dewey again later when the midshipman is trying to tie down a loose cannon. Thorn and his followers lock Dewey in the hold, where he discovers that this ship is a ship of gunrunners. When he is released by Captain Hale, Dewey keeps his mouth shut about the discovery. The ship reaches the port of St. Augustine to unload the guns. Hale meets with Dorgon the pirate, and they plot to remove Dewey, who knows too much. Dewey, his life now in danger, signals Captain Smith aboard the Hornet. The Navy ship gives chase, but finally loses the Falcon at sea. Hale heads to Africa to get in on the slave trade. Dewey is still aboard, protected by Stumpy. Once they reach Africa, though, Dewey is turned over to the slave agent, Higgins. Higgins takes a liking to the young sailor and makes him help procure slaves. During one expedition, Dewey is captured by the Leopard Men, a jungle tribe. They plan to sacrifice him, but Dewey is planning an escape. That's where the strip ends in More Fun number 19. The last few episodes give me a better idea about when these adventures were set to take place. The first clue was Captain Smith's uniform. He wore a hat styled like George Washington's. However, I wasn't able to find out when the Navy used these uniforms. The active slave trade means the story took place prior to the Civil War but after the American Revolution since Dewey serves in the U.S. Navy. 
therefore I placed this story in the early 1800s. The content of the story was fair, but the pacing was sometimes off. The section of the story concerning the gun runners just flew by, and there seemed to be very little reason for them to keep Dewey alive at all once they discovered his secret. The part about the slave trade was not good. There seemed to be an effort made in the writing to make Hagen's, the slave trader, a sympathetic character. He was a slave trader, so I have no sympathy for him. Despite my dissatisfaction with this part of the story, the art for on um, the art on this portion of the story is actually some of the best on the feature. I really liked Cooper's artwork at times, especially in black and white. Issue number two also had its fair share of text stories and articles, including Hot Gold, a thrilling adventure story of the next century by Ken Fitch, author of Super Police. It's a Fact was an illustrated page by Joe Archibald, which had interesting facts about a variety of subjects. These types of pages would become a staple of DC Comics through the 1960s. Readers could learn about science, history, and other subjects while reading their comics. Can't do that anymore with modern comics. Text features for popular science, stamps and coins, and young homemakers are back, as are the movie and radio news features. New Fun Number 2 also contained the very first letters column entitled Fun Mail. This page printed excerpts from letters received from readers of issue number one. It also published a couple of fan drawings and a poll result for the best features. Don Drake won the poll, followed by Super Police, Sandra, and Wing Brady. Not exactly how I would rank them. Now you may be thinking, Mike, this is episode five of your show, and you're only now finishing new fun number two. Keep in mind, though, that I've been covering these issues by feature, so I've already covered a large number of stories that appeared in the first two dozen issues. I also want to give more detailed coverage of the earliest issues and all of the original features. In future episodes, I'll be focusing mostly on the important or significant features. I will be reading every issue in its entirety, though. I was originally hoping that I'd be putting out these episodes on a more regular schedule, such was not to be, as real life has intruded and imposed some additional demands on my time. I will be recording and releasing episodes whenever I can. In my next episode, I'll be covering the emergence of two Golden Age superstars and the birth of a universe. So that's all for this time. Please remember to check my website, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, at www.mikesamazingworld.com for information and pics of all sorts of comics. If you're listening via iTunes, why not go leave a review and help others find the show? Feedback for the show can be sent to mike at dcindexes.com. The mailbag has been rather empty lately, so get to it. I'd also like to thank the two true freaks, Scott and Chris, for helping to distribute the show. Check out twotruefreaks.com for more podcasts on a wide variety of geek topics. I'll be back soon with another episode of Mike's Amazing World of DC History.